Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your weekend is not complete without the first lady of New York radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Most of us have been dealing with change since the beginning of the pandemic. I have great guests today, one of whom is going to show you how you can deal, grow, learn, and thrive from change. And one of my pals, Irish raconteur, Malachi McCourt, he's coming in too to say hello. So straight ahead, two great guests on a great Sunday. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome everyone to the Joan Hamburg Show. And think for a minute about podcasts. I think almost everyone I know has a podcast. But most of these podcasts end up, you know, nice, do it, but nowhere. Dr. Shanker, who's a cognitive scientist has a podcast called A Slight Change of Plans. And she started this. She's the producer. She's the host. And this has become one of the hottest podcasts in the country. And people are talking about it as they should. And when I first heard one of the podcasts, I suddenly became very interested. And I wanted to find out more about Maya Shanker. And there's a lot to find out. It's really fascinating. And it all started with her as a kid and a violin. So welcome to the show. And congratulations. And a slight change of plans, which has taken the podcast world by storm. And let's start from the beginning. You came from a you know fairly large family, and the violin ended up in your life as a young child. Yeah, the violin was such a centerpiece of my childhood. Um, my, my parents immigrated from India in, in the 70s, and my mom had brought her mother's violin with her all the way when she, when she came to this country, and she showed me the instrument when I was six years old. And I was so taken by it, Joan, that I very quickly asked my mom if she could get me a pint-sized violin of my own. And that began, um, you know, what I believe would would become my career. You know, when I was nine years old, I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music in New York and was very fortunately accepted and would travel from Connecticut to New York every weekend. And then when I was in high school, Itzhak Perlman asked me to be his private violin student. And I think that was really the vote of confidence I needed to think, okay, I think I've got this. I think I can actually uh, potentially become pro. And then, but but tell the story, Maya. (laughs) Well, but everything happens. But tell the story about your mom. You know, which made me laugh because my mom was (laughs) like that. But you you definitely had talent. But your mom took it a step further. You were in the city, I think. And she said, let's stop at Juilliard. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is this is a fantastic story uh, because it shows how bold my mom is. But uh, basically, you know, I was I was a, a little kid with big dreams and my mom was not very connected with the the Western classical music scene. You know, my dad's a physics professor. My mom studies physics. Like, I come from a family of scientists. And, but she knew that I, I really wanted to, to see where my potential could be. And so we were in New York City just walking uh, by the Juilliard School's building. And my mom said, why don't we just go in? I'm like, what do you mean just go in? She goes, 
what's the worst thing that can happen, Maya? You have your violin with you. Let's just go into the building. I'm like, well, I can think of a few things uh, like security guards <laughs> escorting us out of the premises because <laughs> we have not been given a formal invitation to be here. Um, but anyway, she just said, let's, let's just go in. And so we, um, we, we walk into the building and my mom uh, strikes up a conversation with a fellow student and her mom in the elevator and says, hey, you know, my daughter, Maya, she loves the violin. It's possible. Do you think after your lesson with your teacher, she could just meet him briefly um, and say a quick hello, maybe play a piece? And they were so generous and so kind and were absolutely willing um, to let us do this. And so I auditioned for him on the spot. He accepted me um, as a summer student and gave me this incredible boot camp that summer that ultimately, I think, got me into good enough shape to to pass the Juilliard audition in the fall. Um, But what was really interesting, Maya, was that you as a kid, I mean, I probably would have been so angry at my mother or if I had done that with my kid, one of my kids, they would have rolled their eyes and I'm not doing it. But you actually accepted the challenge, young as you were. And that was, of course, the beginning of life changing because through them, Juilliard, you performed in front of the great violinist, Itzhak Perlman, and there was another major life changing happening. Yeah, I, like I was saying before, when when Perlman took me on as his private violin student, that was that was a crystallizing moment for me. That you know, you can love something, but you don't always know if you're going to be good enough to to actually make this your career. And so I remember that moment so well, and thinking, wow, I you know, I I'm going to be a violinist. Like that's going to be my foundational identity. And then I was at the, the Perlman music program. He and his wife uh, run a summer music program. and it That was, was early... the Shelter Island? Exactly. It was, it was on Shelter Island uh, in yeah, New York. We go to and... those concerts. Oh, you do? That's so fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's a beautiful place to have a summer camp. Oh, my gosh. Um, but, you know, I was that impatient teenager, woke up early in the morning. It was cold. I don't think I did my warm-ups or my stretching. Who knows? Um, but I, I overstretched my finger on a single note, and I, and I heard a popping sound. Um, and I think initially I was kind of in denial about it, as, as any ambitious teenager might be. And I worked through the pain, and I, I tried to continue to play concerts. And ultimately, uh, doctors told me that I could never play the violin again which is what your whole young life had been all about. Absolutely. I mean, to this day, Joan, you can see remnants of my former life as a violinist. My my right shoulder is, is harder for radio, but my right shoulder is slightly <laughs> elevated compared to my left because of all the hours I spent bowing and my mm-hmm. spine is slightly curved. Um, you know, my my little body literally grew around the ergonomics of the instrument. It is a... It was a, such a formative part of my existence that there is evidence of it in my body today. And, I, you know, I think, I think when I lost the violin, that's, that's when I realized how tethered my self-identity had been to it for so long at that point. You know, I think as kids, we, we just fall in love with things and we do things, but we don't really take that step back and ask these big philosophical questions about who we are and how we relate to the things we're passionate about. But when I lost it, I just remember feeling this huge void within me. Of um, course. And, and I genuinely wasn't sure who I was without it. No, and everyone can understand that. But what's so amazing is the next step when you are doing something or organizing or helping your mom in the basement of your home and a book by uh, Steven Pinker called The Language Instinct became the next clue as to what was going to happen to you. Not every kid who did that was going to suddenly say, neuroscience, maybe this is where I should be. It's the end of the world from violin. Yeah, and and, and look, I don't want to make it sound like it, it happened overnight either. I mean, I was... It never being, does. <laughs> I, was, I was irritable. I was despondent. I was so sad. Uh, probably not a total joy to be around from my parents' perspective that summer, but... Uh, you know, at the time, I remember I was supposed to be, this is the counterfactual world, I was supposed to be in China touring with my musical classmates 
And instead, I was home in Connecticut um, mm. with feeling my parents sorry. helping them. Feeling sorry for myself, exactly. But, you know, I was in the, I was in the basement, um, and I was just kind of perusing the bookshelves, and I, I, I did see this book. It's called The Language Instinct. And I, that book really pulled the curtain back on this marvelous organ <laughs> that we all have, the human mind and the human brain. And I, I just remember reading this book and thinking, wow, if this is what is behind something like our ability to, the, the cognitive machinery that's behind our ability to speak and comprehend language, what amazing cognitive architecture is behind our ability to make complex decisions and to fall in love and to ask these big philosophical questions. I just remember that moment truly being in awe of our minds and feeling a similar kind of excitement for this whole topic as I, as I did with the violin. Um, and I, anyway, I genuinely wasn't sure where it would go from there, right? I mean, I was starting truly anew and I was just on my way to college, but it just gave me you know, for those listeners who are going through a big change, I would just want to say, like, it just it was enough of a seed in that moment, right? I just a little bit of hope that there might be something that I that I was I was really fascinated by, and um, ultimately that led me to become a cognitive scientist. But th- but that's what's so amazing. Y- you were a college person, just even beginning. How did you understand or even put together? behavioral science and which really turned out to be a big career policy making how did you know to make a career out of it most people don't even know what those things are the truth is i didn't either and i don't i think at that point certainly when i was going to college i I wasn't even thinking about a career. I was just thinking, what do I major in, right? I thought I was going to major in music. And so I kind of need an alternative uh, plan right now. And in some ways, like, I, I think I, t- I took the pressure off myself to really chart out any kind of future career. Because again, Joan, I had been charting out this elaborate musical future for so long. And then I learned in that moment that that sort of thing could change in an instant. And so right. part of my brain thought, Ugh, you know, I'm just done making plans for right now. Um, but I, but I knew that I was interested in in cognitive science. And you know, I will share I'll share the story with you because you mentioned my mom's Juilliard method, if you will. But I remember in my in my college orientation program hearing about how there was a monkey lab where they were actually getting to run these you know fascinating psychology and cognitive science experiments um, with, with monkeys and. I go to the first day of that class and the room is overflowing with interested uh, college students. I mean, I I think there were probably 80 people in the room for Mm. a class that was only going to have 14 people. Um, And I was the lowly freshman too, Joan. Everyone else, I felt like there were so many seniors and, and, and upperclassmen. And so I decided, like my mom did, I just had to take matters into my own hands. And so I sold my soul on this application. I remember telling this professor, Laurie Santos, I will, you know, I will do the 5 a.m. shift on Saturdays in New Haven when it's freezing, and I will give you my unborn children, like anything you want, Laurie, just accept me into this class. And ultimately, she did. I was the only freshman she took in that year, um, and it changed my life because it, 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 it led me to take an early seat of a passion and actually really lean in for the entirety of my undergrad. And then I ended up getting a PhD in, in the subject. And then to your, to your earlier question, I, I did not connect the dots. I didn't know what kind of career a person could have in, in this space. And, and here's what happened. So I was a postdoc at Stanford studying neuroscience, as you mentioned. I was in the basement of a windowless, dark MRI laboratory where I was sending in my fifth person into the MRI scanner and looking at his brain. And I remember thinking, I feel like the order of operations is wrong here. I am literally looking at this dude's amygdala, and I have not even had a conversation with him. I don't know if he has kids. I don't know what his favorite book is. I don't know what his favorite ice cream flavor is. I just knew, given my very social disposition and my curiosity about humans, that this was maybe not the right gig for me. And so I ended up calling that undergrad professor, Laurie, the one who gave me that that chance with the monkey lab, and I said— 
Yeah, exactly. My first break. And I said, Laurie, um, do you know that thing I've been doing for like the last 10 years? I kind of don't want to do it anymore. I'm thinking of becoming a general management consultant. Can you help me? And she said, okay, Maya, I've invested too much into you for you to just jettison the whole field. Um, And then she shared this incredible story that she had heard about how the Obama White House and, and the rest of the federal government was working to automatically enroll low-income kids into the national school lunch program. Um, so basically, the, you know, the government offers this program to, to kids who can't afford lunch. And um, despite the fact they were offering the lunch program, millions of kids were still going hungry each and every day. Right. They weren't taking they did, advantage. Yeah. And, and when they did a behavioral audit of the, of the program, what they learned is that there were some really important barriers that were in the way of parents signing their kids up. There was a stigma associated with signing up your kids for a public benefits program. You know, when I was at the White House, I talked to principals who said, you know, parents will tell me like they work really hard and they don't want to depend on the government. And then um, there was also a ton of burdensome paperwork that was required for these kids, um, you know, for the application process. And so they ended up using an insight from my field, from the field of behavioral science, where they automatically enrolled all students into the program. So they changed the program from an opt-in program to an opt-out program. So now parents only had to take an affirmative step if they actively wanted to unenroll their kids from the program. And that one change led 12 and a half million more kids to eat lunch at school every day. Which is unbelievable, but you mentioned the White House. So how did you get to the White House? It wasn't like you had connections or you had (laughs) uncles who were senators. That's another great learn from my mother's story. (laughs) Yes, it was it was yet another example of me taking my mom's Juilliard method. So exactly like you said, Laurie tells me this incredible story of stuff happening in the federal government. And I have no idea where to start. Right. Because I have no connections into the political world. I have no public policy experience. Right. I'm I'm feeling imposter syndrome to the sky and back around even even suggesting that I should be in, in this kind of role. Um, but I ended up sending a cold email, uh, the, same, the same thing my mom did, just walk into the building, you know, to send the email. And so I sent a it. cold email <laughs> to, to a White House official. Um, his name is, is Cass Sunstein, and he Did you know in, him at all, or you found his I name online? Yeah, Laurie was able to get me his email address, but I'd never met him. Um, So he's getting an email from a total stranger. And uh, I remember in that email, Joan, I I even I was I was hedging a lot. I said, I know I'm not cool enough to work with the likes of Obama. But if there is a state or local government opportunity to do this kind of work, to be a practitioner of behavioral science, please let me know. And fortunately for me, he ignored all the insecurities that were seeping out of this email, and he um, wrote back right away and said, here's the email address for President Obama's science advisor and his deputy. Have at it. Let them know I passed you along. And two days later, I'm interviewing with White House officials trying to convince mm. them that they should hire me and they should create a new role for a behavioral scientist because, you know, the role didn't even exist. I wasn't... Right. Who even wasn't knew as the public that they had a behavioral science group? They didn't. <laughs> I think that was, both, that was the biggest... Well, yeah, that was the biggest hill to fight. There was no job that I was applying for. There was no team that I was hoping to build. Everything was just in my imagination. And so... I showed up to that interview and I said, I'm not just pitching me, I'm pitching you on the idea of creating a dedicated role for a behavioral scientist um, in this office, a new role. And then, um, you know, I I did my best. And uh, I I remember even before I got a formal job offer, I ended my my lease in California in my apartment and signed a one-year lease in D.C. and just kind of showed up on their doorstep and was like, y'all need to make this work for me. (laughs) Unreal. And you became the first behavioral science advisor of the UN, mm-hmm. in addition to everything, senior advisor at the White House Office of Science and Technology, and lots of other things. Now, you're, are you still Google's senior director of behavioral economics? I am. Yeah. It's been a busy time, Joan. It's a busy time. Yeah, well, it sounds good. So let's go back to when I first met you inadvertently you didn't know that through your <laughs> podcast how what happened 
Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So a slight change of plans um, was an idea that originated literally in my closet during quarantine, which is where my studio is set up. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was I was feeling really overwhelmed, like so many people in this world by the change that was happening in in around us in the world that was happening in my personal life. My husband and I were navigating loss. We had just um, had a miscarriage uh, with our our beloved surrogate. And so we had just lost, um, you know, our our dreams of becoming parents. And I I just didn't know how to process all of this change that was happening. Yeah. And, and feeling just discombobulated by the novelty of it all, right? Like everything just felt new and uncharted and, and I and I just felt like I don't know how to meet this moment. And then what I did is is I actually put on my behavioral science hat and I thought to myself, okay, take a moment, take a breath. What you do know is that while the specifics of the current moment do feel very overwhelming uh, for so many reasons, uh, COVID and otherwise, um, change is not a new phenomenon for human beings, right? We've done this rodeo before. We know that change is embedded in the fabric of what it means to live and how it, what it means to move about in this world. And so if you can look to your past, Maya, like I was asking myself this and, and how you've navigated change, but also if you can look to other people's stories that might not look exactly like yours, um, but who have navigated profound changes in their lives and try to mine those stories for insight, uh, you could potentially learn a ton. And and so this this show, A Slight Change of Plans, came from a very personal desire for me to crack the nut on change. And it ended up evolving into this amazing thing that I just could never have anticipated. I mean, as you were saying, like, everyone's got a podcast, it feels like. And I thought I was just going to be one of those people that had a podcast. And I just never would have anticipated how much it would resonate with people from all over the world. I mean, I get letters heartfelt letters from people every single day um, who are telling me about their own change of plans um, and what this show has meant to them. And then, um, you know, at the end of last year, Apple awarded the show the best show of the year. And I think that was a testament to the fact that change is so universal, you know? It is. And not everyone has Tiffany Haddish and Clinton and all, and a lot of goodies as well as whatever. And now tell me, did I read that it's going to be, or maybe is, a docu-series? Yeah, there's a production company called The Cinemart that is interested in adapting this into a television show, which is totally new Good for territory you. for so. me as well. Um, but, so we'll see, we'll see what happens there. But I, I think what's been so amazing to me about this show is that it almost doesn't matter how unusual the circumstances are of the person that we're hearing. There's resonance in those stories. So, you know, you hear from Tiffany Haddish, you hear from Hillary Clinton, from Casey Musgraves, from Michael Pollan about psychedelics. And, and you hear from just ordinary people like my husband's colleague who was a total health nut and then got a stage four bone cancer diagnosis in the middle of uh, quarantine and is having to navigate a cancer diagnosis and a amputation of his right leg. And mm. it, it's almost like when you, if you were to use one of those, you know, technological systems where you uh, anonymize people and you can't tell who's a celebrity and you can't tell who's a normal person, um, you would never know because the stories just feel so human. Um, and, and they help us understand how we respond to change and problem solve during change and grieve during change. And, and the lessons truly feel universal. Right. And to be able to come out on the other side, Dr. Maya Shanker, a slight change of plans. And Maya, tell the audience how they can get involved with the podcast. Yes. Okay. So uh, you can find a slight change of plans anywhere you find your podcast. So it's available on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, everywhere. Um, And you can also follow me on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shankar. So uh, M-A-Y-A-S-H-A-N-K-A-R. Uh, Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm pretty active and try to give a little bit of a behind-the-scenes glimpse into uh, making this show. Congratulations. You've done a great service, and it sounds like you're having a wonderful time. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much, Joan, for having me. It was a pleasure to talk with you. A pleasure. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. More to come.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. What could be better than to celebrate St. Patrick's Day with New York's famous Irishman, favorite Irishman, the one and only Malachi McCourt. And Malachi, whom you know, He's a writer. In fact, his book is now out in paperback, Among Swimming. He owned, in fact, I think, as I remember, Malachy's was one of the first single pubs in New York City. Malachy has done so much. He's acted. He ran for governor. You name it. And Malachy McCourt did it. And I met Malachy in the 70s when we were both working for the same radio station. Good morning to you. Good afternoon to you. How are you, my dear friend? If I was any better, Joan, God would be jealous. (laughs) So I'm in good form. It is so good to talk to you, the first lady of radio. I have always admired you and uh, that any time you're you're not on radio, the airs are barren. And so uh, I'm delighted to be a part of your uh, of your of your your airtime just once more after all these years. All and these we used years. to have a lot of fun at WMCA. And uh, at that time, it was a. Uh, it was a very rowdy time uh, with Bob Grant and Barry Gray and uh, and and a bunch of folks there in those days. It and was. as they say, they're all gone now. They're all gone, and it was like a free-for-all. I still remember it was my first job, Malachi, and yes. they hired me. I didn't want to do it. I never heard of it. But my boss, who was then the head of New York Magazine, insisted we do it and I get the job I didn't even know what I was doing and they tell me I share a desk who do I share a desk with they said oh don't worry very quiet lovely Malachi McCourt who knew when I opened the drawers to put the notepads you know like such a proper little girl I don't know Malachi the bottles were lined up in every desk drawer. <laughs> and like I said, this doesn't, what is this? And it was all booze and whiskey. And I would be irate. I would dump the drawers. And then, of course, the next day, they'd be full again. <laughs> well, in those days, um, I, had a, I had a capacity that was... Uh, Apparently, a somewhat miracle, but you know, Joan, I have not had a drink now in thirty-six years. No, I uh, I stopped it and I uh, decided it was uh, ruining my life. And uh, I was married to Diana, and that was uh, she very quietly put up with me. But uh, I decided, hey, this is awful, what I'm doing. So I stopped drinking. And uh, I've been very happy ever since. <laughs> right. And and no one, well, no one that I knew, you knew from all the guys. Malachi came to this country. Actually, he was born here. But his family went to Limerick, Ireland. And ultimately, he came back when he was a very young man. And he rapidly found his way in the bar scene. And I literally, I didn't grow up here, but I had no clue. You were the one who inaugurated me in the ways of the New York bar scene, the drinkers, the life. It was its own community. <laughs> I 
did I do that, Joan? You did. You did. But unfortunately, or fortunately, I like to eat more than I like to drink. You didn't understand it in the early yes. days. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, uh, it, it was a mystery to me how anybody could uh, touch food. I mean, that, that absorbed everything you drank. Those, anyway, that was all my sort of crazy uh, thinking in those days. I came across a picture of uh, of uh, uh, the, the, the WMCA softball team. We oh, went Lord. to uh, Yankee Stadium, and there we were. And your beloved was on one of our teams, on one of the teams. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was, I, uh, I, I, I don't know, uh, I can't remember the year, but that was it. But that was oh, the old Yankee Stadium, and I just remember my uh, name being up on that scoreboard. I have a picture of that. Wow. So, well, we certainly had plenty of adventures, and no one had more adventures than you when you came to New York. And even now, when and I had read your book in hardcover, and now Among Swimming is out in paperback, but even reading it again... It must amaze you that you came yeah. through all those times. You ended up being in Broadway shows, in movies, and then, of course, running your own bar where all the young ladies from the Barbizon Hotel for Women That's right. yeah. get inaugurated into the art of drinking. Yeah, <laughs> and other things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, it was... Um... Uh, I never, I always had to sort of conceal things, Joan, you know, because uh, I have no formal education. I left school when I was 13, but I was an omnivorous reader. The, the Carnegie Library came to Limerick, and uh, I uh, I just joined and, and just practically ate the books that they, I didn't read them with Frank and myself, my brother Frank. Of course. Uh, he, he, no, almost eight books. And he, I think he was the only high school teacher in New York that didn't have a high school diploma. But he, uh, he managed to fake his way into teaching, into Stuyvesant High School. And I have uh, faked my way all my life with, uh, by, you know, the people have said to me, you know, you're, you're a terrible liar. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm very good at it. I'm, uh, I've been doing it all my life. <laughs> That's, no, and I, you, have, you had a lot of brothers, but the only one that I really knew was your brother Frank. Yes, yes. Who yes, was I, a writer and a beloved teacher, I think, at Stuyvesant. That's right. And, that's right. and then he wrote Angela's Ashes, which right. won every major award. But it's interesting, right, that coming from, as you said, it was even beyond poverty in Limerick, yeah. how there was so much love for words and for language in that family. Well, there were three of us, uh, three died in childhood. The, uh, my sister, the only girl of uh, six, uh, seven, seven children, and she died. That's what caused our, our, our going to Ireland. My mother had a breakdown. Then we go to Ireland, and there are twin boys, Eugene and Oliver, and they died over there. So then uh, the, uh, four of us grew to adulthood, but they're all dead now, and I'm the last one. And I just hit 90 there a few months back, and I'm absolutely astonished at how that that happened. But any day above ground, Joan, is a good one, and uh, <laughs> we're still at it. <laughs> That's for sure. Now, with your children, and you married very young, I mean, your first marriage, and that produced two children. Are any of the children writers or artists or Well, following? my daughter Siobhan is part of the uh, Irish Writers, which I founded, Irish Writers and Artists. Uh -huh. And uh, to join that, you don't have to be Irish, or you don't have to be a writer, I mean, you do. Uh, you need you need to be a writer, yeah. But being Irish is not necessary, and that's all. Been been if you art whatever artist we have, you, singer, dancer, or any kind of an artist, join up with us, and uh, you're you're 
I'm, people are most welcome. And I still do a show on WBAI on Sundays. And that is, uh, that's, you know, that's uh, totally free, as you know. They, they don't right. pay any money. But uh, I love talk, and I have a partner and, and that, John McDonough. And we, uh, we, we have fun with that. We still, still outrage people, and people get mad at us and all. You know how it is, John, with people that take offense at anything. Right, that's for sure. And yeah. we certainly came of age during that time when we were broadcasting with the one of the original Yeller Screamers, yes. you know, our pal Bob Grant in those days. Oh, and my God, And we all God, took yeah. it in stride, remember? All that. Yeah. And Barry, was, uh, Barry, Barry Gray. Barry Gray. And then Barry Farber came aboard uh, subsequently. And John Sterling was doing all the uh, sports stuff, yeah, and then he became the a big deal at uh, Yankee uh, with the Yankees and the Yankee announcer, announcer as well. So, and uh, Steve Powers, and oh my God, no, our yeah, crew, uh, everyone there, and we were all like blinking in the light. Everyone yeah. there ended up doing great. And your stories were unbelievable. I mean, you were a longshoreman. You spent time everywhere, including a little friendly time in jail. And you didn't miss a beat. And don't you marvel even now when you write your books and you lecture and you do your shows, how life kept coming and yet the bad stuff you ended up stepping over and going on to the next and you became a real New York character and celebrity. That's uh, uh, <clears throat> it's very hard for me to comprehend that, Joan. It, um, it, that, that I could call Joan Hamburg my friend is an astonishing achievement that that a celebrity like you would even know my name. And I'm still astounded at that. And it, uh, it and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm delighted. And of course, I drop your name all over the place as oh, well. Oh, Maliki, you're such a character. <laughs> you're such a character. I know, and Maliki McCourt tried so hard to teach me to drink instead of throwing out his old whiskey bottles. But I never... <laughs> <laughs> I, that wasn't your best effort. I, I never could do that. And you, I mean, when I think, I remember when you wanted to be governor of New York City and you ran under the umbrella of the Green Party. I did. And that, that was a, uh, of course, uh, a, a mistake. No, not a mistake. I mean, it was great. That was great fun. I no, got it was to fun. travel all over the state. It, uh, it it just was so uh, it was so it was an expensive misadventure, but it, anyway, I went around the state and talked to people, and and everybody said. But I got about fifty, about forty six thousand votes, which was uh, I mean, can you imagine forty six thousand strangers saying that you were fit to be governor? Yeah, I and, love that. Uh, and that was, I'd say, I'll accept that. And, and, was. and that was exciting. And and no one has or had more stories than Maliki. And I still remember when you went to Fire Island, you know, everyone told you that's where you've got to be, that's where the action is. And you would absolutely corrupt everyone all night long. And then you sold Bibles to make a buck during the day, only you. I did. Well, that was, can you imagine, Joan, here am I walking up and down the beach in a bathing suit, and I have a drink in one hand and a Bible in the other, <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it didn't work too well, so the, the Bible venture did not, uh, and you know, it was the, what I remember about that was, they had a Catholic Bible with the Dewey version, and there was a Protestant Bible, the King James. And then there was something for our Jewish people. There was Jewish story in America, nothing biblical.
I'd gone up and down the beach Selling. and uh, trying to sell Bibles and not much. So I gave it up and went back to drinking. And that was... <laughs> <laughs> and that lasted for a while. That lasted. There was a, there was a couple of summers there. <laughs> But fun. Oh, my gosh. Fun, and I fun remember book. Malachi because I hadn't thought about it. But when I reread Among Swimming, you describe how you were at, I think it was an event or a sport thing when you met Elizabeth and Prince Philip. Oh, yeah. Queen. She was the queen. At she time. was the queen. And they were yeah. at this particular event. I think it was a reception for what? For football, for soccer, for something. Well, she was visiting New York and I was a member of the New York Rugby Club. And there were a lot of Brits on the club. And because of that, the British consulate uh, issued us a number of passes and the president of our club was a very proper Oxonian chap, you say. I said, none of your chaps would like to come and meet the queen. So I don't know. For some reason, I, I put up my hand. I was trying to impress a young woman at the time, Anita Whitney. So anyway, I got a couple of tickets and uh, I arrived at the armory at 66th Street. And there was thousands of people there, and it was a it was a roasting hot night. Everybody was sweating profusely, and Anita suddenly became faint, and she said, "I have to get out of here." So I ushered her over to a side side door where a guy that I knew, a cop, who happened to be on duty. And he said, I said, she's not where well. he said, come in here. So he put me in a room and in the next door and there was a bar there. So I got a couple of large uh, right. cognacs and gave Anita one and took one myself. Then God the next bless. thing, the door opened and in walks the queen with Governor Rockefeller. And behind them, there was Mayor Wagner and Prince Philip and uh, so forth. So anyway... Uh, a guy, a major general or something, came over to me and he said, uh, would you take your place in line for the reception? And I didn't know what he was talking about. Right. But anyway, he put us uh, in a line and uh, we stood there. And then the Queen and Philip came down. He took my name, Malachi McCourt, and me, and me Mr. Malachi McCourt and Mrs. Anita Whitney. And the Queen says, how do you do? How do you do? And we shook hands. And you're not supposed to extend your hand until she does. That was the, pro the, 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 the right. stuff. So anyway, she did that and that. So that, after the recept, that, that presentation finished, um, Philip uh, comes over to me and he says, uh, I say, oh, chap, he said, you're... You're Irish, aren't you? And I said, oh, yes, I am indeed. He said, oh. He said, there was somewhat of a reception this morning uh, when we got off the uh, yacht. He said, there were you? Uh, well, I said, I couldn't get there. I was working on the docks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he said, oh, well, that was good enough, he said. So then, and he said, and what do you do in New York? I said, well, I am a longshoreman. And he said, oh, very good, and so forth. Well, listen, old boy, he said, if you're ever in London, he said, look me up, will you? I said, oh, sure, so well, indeed, old boy. So we shook hands, and that was it. And but I your date couldn't him. believe it, right? Yeah. That you were so friendly with Prince. We were princes and queens and all kinds of things. <laughs> you know, John, life is silly. And I'm 90 now, and I get I I I I'm always thinking how silly life has been, and how uh, uh, the you know what gets us through is you have to you have to have a laugh. It is absolutely essential to have the laugh. That's what keeps us going. And when I uh, when I was asked to write a book. And my book, A Long Swimming, became a bestseller. 
and it's now at uh, it now can be had and, and uh, at the at, at the soft cover and uh, which published by uh, by a friend a friend now re republished actually and it uh, it is and I tell people amongst women it comes from a mishearing of the Hail Mary which Catholics all know. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou, amongst women. And I thought when I was a kid, it said amongst swimming. And that's why I called the book uh, Amongst Among swimming. swimming. And so that's why. Yeah, it's called uh, Mondegreen. Uh, there was a poet named, oh uh, God, I can't give her name, but she was the one, she... She she remembered another Scottish poem. They slew the Earl of Moray and laid him on the green. So she thought it said laid him on the green. <laughs> and so and so she took the took part of that word, that phrase out, laid him on the green and made it Mondegreen. So now Mondegreen is what you miss here. That's the description of it, because it's a new word in the English language. And I love to hear, I love little uh, pieces of information like that. So right. on the green is when you meet, lead us not into Penn Station. You know, that uh, <laughs> is another one. I led the pigeons to the flag. That's another on the green. <laughs> and so people have their own, have their own on the green. So there they are. There and Maliki, are you going to celebrate St. Patrick's Day? Is that a big thing in your life? Well, it you know, St. Patrick was an Englishman. He was captured when he was a kid, and he was brought to Ireland by an Irish pirate, and he was sold, and he became a shepherd on the hills of Antrim. And his name is not Patrick. I mean, his real name is Maywin Suckett. Is his no, family is that day. true? That's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was uh, sold as a slave, and he spent his time in the north of Ireland. And then he escaped and went to uh, France and became a priest, went to Rome and became a bishop. And the Pope Celestine said to him, what would you like to do now? And he said, I'd like to go back to Ireland. So he went back to Ireland, and he took this perfectly happy pagan people and he gave made them all catholics and ruined the great country with, the, with this but anyway and then he took the name patrick patrick from the latin which is patricius which is means a nobleman in the latin he took it from the latin that's uh-huh. how patrick came about but his real name was maywin Socket. Isn't that a strange name? Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and what a story. And, and, his, and his parents were Romans, you see, and they were occupying Britain. And they, I, nobody knows what part of... They, were, they might have lived in Wales. Or, nobody knows exactly where Nile... The man that captured them was a guy, <laughs> a pirate, named Nile of the Nine Hostages, and he sold them mm. at 16... And he escaped when he was twenty, and that's when he went back to uh, when he went back to Ireland. When he went back to when he went to Rome and got got uh, became a bishop and so forth. Wow, Took what a story! Years. Yeah, he probably that, did not eat corned beef and cabbage either. And we didn't in Ireland. Actually, it said the, the the main dish there was ham and cabbage. You know, big, big, big lumps of ham. Corned beef and cabbage is a New England dish. A New England dish, yeah. So it's uh, it's not traditional there. It was New England. No, we used to broadcast from there on St. Patrick's Day, and when we would say, where's the corned beef and cabbage, they looked at us as if we were from Mars. You know, (laughs) we don't eat that. No, indeed. Who eats that? (laughs) Indeed. Americans only, yeah. Only us. They could afford to wait for it. <laughs> I know. Maliki, I love talking to you. I'm so happy everything's going great in your life. 
right there, front and forward as always. I still remember how exciting it was. I knew someone who had a bar with his name on it. That was a deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, was actually, um, I was the first singles bar, I don't know, in New York, certainly, but I don't know if it's the first one in America. That was 1958. Then I got another one. There was Maliki's the second. And then I got another one called Himself. And then I got another one called The Bells of Hell. That was, <laughs> which became my, my theme song uh, for, for the show. The bells of hell go tingling-a-ling for you, but not for me. Oh, death, where is thy sting-a-ling-a-ling, or grave thy victory? If you meet the undertaker, or the young man from the Prue, have a pint with what's left over, now I'll say goodbye to you. Bravo, the one and only Malachi McCourt, his life in paperback now, A Monk Swimming, a bestseller. Thank you, With the help of God and four policemen. (laughs) Happy St. Patrick's Day to you and yours. Indeed, Joan, thank you so much. It is, uh, I can't tell you, a great pleasure is to resume the friendship. It's been many a year since we met in the 70s. Right. And, uh, That's right, middle of the 70s. Let's not stop meeting. No, we've had a lot of adventures. All Indeed. the best to you, Maliki. Enjoy the day, and I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. More ahead. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. We're coming up to 3 o'clock, and that means farewell, goodbye, have a great rest of Sunday. We'll do this again next Sunday, but there's wonderful programming all day long on WABC, so stay tuned.